Many, many men. Good evening. Happy Wednesday night uh, to you all. And those online, welcome. Hey, a couple announcements as you're opening up to Judges chapter 10, where we will be picking back up where we left off. Um, a couple of new things. One is um, Jim is uh, orchestrating a, a, an opportunity for a mountaintop experience there, here, <laughs> coming in the Saranac Lake there. It's going to be a 5.5 mile. I'm just going to show you this because lots of details. He's a very detail-oriented kind of man, you know. Checklist, the whole bit, you know. It's like a survival kit, you know. So to so get this, and, uh, and if you're online and you're in the area, uh, make sure you uh, reach out. It looks like it's going to be about 29 April here, coming very soon uh, for that little adventure. And uh, Lord willing, you won't have any snow at the top of the peak there, but you never know. You never know. Second one is VBS information, serving opportunities to, to help us out here with the July 21st, 22nd, just a two-day VBS. I see Julie or Steve there, uh, the children's ministry there to uh, orchestrate to, you know, even if you're not part of the children's ministry, if you want to just help in those moments, that's a great opportunity to be able to serve God in those, uh, especially if you, uh, you know, want to like get crafts and games and, and just, uh, you know, organize chaos kind of a thing. So it's kind of a fun thing. So it's a lot of fun to get involved in serving uh, God's uh, little people, that's for sure. Hey, uh, as we continue in the book of Judges, chapter 10 and 11, we're going to take two chapters. Yes, it's a lot, but we're going to just uh, see how the Lord is uh, just going to let this flow and uh, cover it all here tonight. Uh, title is The Deliverers, and, uh, and uh, we'll see how that plays out here. We're going to see three more judges here this evening. Father, we thank you. And as we open up your word and just allow your spirit just to sp use your the word to speak to our hearts, Lord, just to teach us to draw us closer to you and our not only in our understanding but our love for you and for one another and uh, to have a desire and understanding of the fact that you are our great deliverer and yes lord you use people in our lives to help us and it's just amazing um, not to forsake the fellowship because it's just a beautiful thing when the body of christ comes together to help one another in jesus name amen <clears throat> We saw in here in chapter 10, a nation in decay. We'll see that in verses 1 through 18. Now, in this decay, we're going to find uh, there's reasons why they're decaying as a nation. And the first part is always starts with the fact that a decay will happen in one's life, but a nation as well when there is a lack of gratitude to, to the Lord for doing what he has done. Delivering them over and over and over and over. <laughs> We're going to see that again, that they're going to need to be delivered once again. And we start off here with three judges here that, and, that we're going to talk about. In chapter 10, we're going to see two. We see it right in the very beginning in verses 1 through 2. The first one, after Abimelech, there rose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Ishakar, and he dwelt in Shemir, the mountains of Ephraim, and he judged Israel 23 years, and he died and was buried in Shemar. Now, that's all we know about him. <laughs> the fact that he was a deliverer, a judge, that God raised him up. We're not told much about his career as a judge, 
But we do know that he successfully judged them for a very long time of 23 years. And remember, as he was raising, he delivered them out of the last bondage, they, they never really fully recovered from the one prior to this. They really never fully recover. There's just always a remnant of the world that's just kind of lingering there because they keep going back over and over back to the world. We will see. Like a man going back to his sin. Over and over, there's going to be a remnant. There's going to be some uh, after effects. Even though you've been delivered and brought back out, there's still going to be effects on you. And we see that here, that yes, that God raised Tola up as a judge here. 23 years. Followed by, after him, after he died, right into Rose um, Yair, um, which is uh, in uh, Gile- uh, Gileadic, Gileadic, Gileadic. There we go. And he judged Israel 22 years. Now he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. They also had 30 towns, which are called Havath, Yair, Yair, to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Yair died and was buried in Camon. So we also know a little about Yair in our, our in the scriptures today. We see that he served as a leader of Israel. We don't know that he if he that he served, uh, you know, only just the numbers of twenty two years. But again, we see if you take these two judges and you see that the the years of of adding up there, uh, we're talking twenty five years. Of, of give or take there, of peace and goodness for the nation of Israel. There was no conflict. There was no going back. But they were just living the lives and doing it. But it's interesting for Yair that he had 30 sons, which means he had a polygamous kind of, kind of guy. He probably had many wives. It means he had a lot of wealth because you didn't have that many sons if you didn't have the wealth. And then the, also these sons were also leaders placed in all of these towns. And they rode donkeys, which means they were riding a good ride they had a good vehicle that means they had money all of that means they have money they have power they're in control and they did that for 22 years in a territory ruled by his family almost like he has a title of king but not a title of king he was a judge but it seems like he acted like one because he had all of his sons and on his fancy little transportations over each of their own territory to rule. Then we see here in verse 6, the apostasy coming once again. We see the fact that Israel's lack of gratitude to the, to the Lord was not good here in the verse 5 verses. Right, they they started. There was some goodness there, but there was a lack of gratitude. There was nothing mentioned at all about serving God and loving God, or or any of those kinds of things standing out. Just that fact that these there was some longevity before they go back into captivity again. Here in verse six, we see that then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Baals and the Astaroths and the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the God, the Lord and did not serve him. Now it's interesting under the two judges, 
Israel experienced these 45 years of peace and prosperity, it appears. No major conflicts of being in bondage. But we also, again, do not see any gratitude or anything. And what happens, it now leads into Israel's sevenfold apostasy. Seven, this is the seventh time they're going to go into apostasy, meaning they're going to turn against the, their, their, their belief, their understanding, their, become a very unbelieving people against God and follow other gods. And in here we see that they, they, they actually follow seven gods. Little G's, seven little G's of all these different nations that are surrounding and intertwined with them. The essence of idolatry is so clear here. But look what happens if you sit there as they've done for 45 years and enjoying God's gifts and God's prosperity and God's it seems to be a, a good life, a, a, a night blessed life, and, it's, and you're doing it without being grateful to the giver. Israel was very guilty of that. Psalm 69.30, Thanksgiving glorifies God and, in a, and, in, and is a strong defense against the selfishness and the idolatry that can set in. We must be a gratitude hearts of what the giver, God, who has given us so much. Even if it's little, you still give thanks for the little that he has provided for you. Because if not, then it will cause you to get into that selfish mode and the idolatry mode. It will turn to that eventually, like the people of Israel. And in Deuteronomy 8, verses 10 through 14, we know in the scripture that God was not surprised by this. This is a trend. This is, this is something to the fallen nature, that nature that seems to want to be selfish and want to do their own thing. You will turn to idolatry. You'll turn to things of this world. But here it's very clear that the children of Israel, again, did evil in the sight of the Lord. They weren't just, eh, you know, it's no big deal, you know, worshiping God or not. I mean, we were really having a good time. Everything's fine. Everything's good. No, no. They did evil. It's a phrase is repeated seven times in the book of Judges. And it shows literally the depths of the evil of Israel. Even it was worse because they didn't. They did it before the eyes of God. They literally did evil in front of God. In front of God. That's why I'm always reminding the guys. Remember, when you, get, you do that sin, you're doing it in front of the eyes of God. He's with you. And they did it the same thing back then. God sees these things. And they served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. The, the essence of Israel's sin was that they served other gods. See, seven different Ethnic, national gods are mentioned right here. They were not mentioning just one or two, but we're talking all these different ethnic and national gods. Why? Are those cute little idols great to look at? If you've ever seen them, if you've ever seen the history and look at what those idols look like, they're not like they're the greatest little things you put on your shelf. Because they have a, they're beautiful. No, most of these were wretched looking things. It's what they stood for is why they do it. Why is there idolatry? It might not be the thing itself. It's what it stands for. That is why we get gravitated to those idolatry issues or selfish issues and things. It's because they're associated with some pagan deity of, of practice. Baal, the weather god, was associated with financial success. They, they chased after financial success. Astaroth, 
The goddess of fertility was associated with love and sex and romance. That's what they were chasing after. Not the little statue on the, on the mantle, but what that stood for. What they were asking that little idol to provide to them and give to them. And as the other gods of the neighboring nations around them, it was a matter of conforming to the popular culture and doing whatever everyone else was doing. Oh, that's, whoa, you see what's going on over to the next town? Let's go do that. You hear about that city? Let's go to that city and let's go get caught into that. You hear what's going on the West Coast? We could do that on the East Coast. It's nothing new under the sun. But Israel's worship of neighboring gods reminds us that the people of God are often in the danger of worshiping what the world worships. We got to be careful as the children of God. Do not worship what the world worships. But they forsook the Lord. And when you forsake the Lord, one of the first things that will happen, you will not serve the Lord. And they didn't. They didn't serve him. Perhaps Israel did not consciously forsake God. But when you start adding these worships of pagan gods, and you start worshiping of those... You're, you're, and you mix that with trying to worship the true God, you're going to forsake the Lord. It's only a matter of time you're going to forsake the Lord. The Lord's going to be pushed out, and these foreign, these, 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 these foreign gods are going to just start creeping in. The culture's going to creep in on you. Because here Israel was willing to worship just about anything except the true God. And when a man stops believing in God, he does not believe in nothing. He believes in anything. That is exactly what plays out. You and it may look good, smell good. Oh, so it oh, it just makes it and it has a form it's a form of godliness the scripture talks about. You that he's really I think he I think he does know. I think she does know God. Oh, I think this is really a God thing. This is really a miracle. It's a miraculous. Oh, it's an incredible experience. Have you really experienced you get all these things to try to justify in your mind of why you're following a false God? It's not the God of the Bible. And that's exactly what's happening to him. So what is God's response here? Verses 7 through 9. <laughs> you're going into apostasy? If you know your history, guys, you know you're going to go into slavery, servitude to some nation. Watch, look what happened. So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. From that year, they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years. All the children of Israel were, who were on the other side of the Jordan, that would be the east side of the Jordan, in the land of the Amorites in Gilead. Moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan to fight against uh, Judah, also against Benjamin and, and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. <laughs> Understand something. Because the children of Israel were interested in the world, they wanted more of understanding what's going on in the world. What's, did you, let's see what's going on in the world. What's going on in the world? They become controlled by the world. 
I wonder what's going on in the world. Do you see what's going on in the world? Oh, look at what's going on in the world. You'll get controlled by the world. If Israel wanted to serve the gods of the Philistines and the Amorites, God would allow them to do so. He ain't going to force them to worship him. He will allow them the fullest sense. You want your full appetite? You want a full, you want the you want to drink from that hose? I'll turn the hose, I'll let the hose a full blast for you. So he allows them the full sense by selling them into the servitude to the Philistines and Amorites. You want the world? You can be let them control you. Let them take over. That's what you want. And what did happen? It wasn't good. It's never good. <laughs> when you get caught up into the world, it's never good. It always seems to be good when you start going down the path, but it never is good. So what happens? They were harassed and oppressed with the, of the children of Israel. Of course, Israel's never going to be blessed when they are serving these other gods. They're always going to be harassed and oppressed. Even as a child of God and you're out in the work world and you try to be like the guys in the work world, you think you're just going to, it's going to be good. You're going to just be right part of it and they're going to do nothing but harass you and oppress you and mess with you as a child of God. They're not going to blend and accept you into this world of theirs. You're not part of that world. But God just... Gave them to what they wanted. And whenever you see the world oppressed in the Old Testament, that word oppressed in the world, you can put a word and substitute that, the word depressed. Because the oppressed in the Old Testament can be put the word depressed because it places, because it's external oppression speaks of internal depression. But why am I so depressed, people ask. I've got everything I need. This is nice. Everything's great. So why should I be depressed if I've got everything and everything seems to be fine? I always ask. Maybe it's because they have given themselves to those things of the world. You don't even realize you you started allowing things of this world and the things that take your eyes off of God and you've allowed to come in. It's gonna it, that oppression is going to bring depression inside you internally. Verses ten through fourteen, we see that the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, "We have sinned against you, because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals." So the Lord said to the children of Israel, oh, finally, you've come into your senses. No, hold on, keep reading. Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines? Haven't I already freed you from them once before? Haven't we been down this path before? <laughs> you, were, you were completely engulfed by these, the worldly people, these gods before, and I delivered you from them at the time. Why are we repeating this, 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 this song? What's going to happen? Also, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Whoa. What? Not our God. Six other times you delivered us. 
You didn't, you didn't say no. And this time, he says no more. God, so it says right here, go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. You want the, those gods? Let's see if they're going to deliver you. You want your fill? Have your fill. Let's see how, how, how it satisfies your appetite. Let's see if it really keeps you, you can survive from this. See, the words of this cry seemed fine when you first look at it, right? Look at, we have sinned God against you because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. It sounds like they're confessing. It sounds like they've got a brokenness there. It sounds like they're finally coming to the senses. They're going to come back to the Lord. And they're, they're crying. Doesn't that mean that they've completely repented? I mean, they're just crying right there. No. Just because someone's crying. Just because someone says they recognize what they've done and what they're doing does not mean God says, wait a minute. No, no, I know your heart. You, you're, that's not true repentance. That's, you're just sorry you got caught and you're in a really bad situation now. That's the only reason why you're crying out. And as soon as you, I, I deliver you out of that situation, you're going to go right back to it. So no, I'm not going to rescue you. I'm not going to deliver you this time. You have your, your little gods. Let's see the people you're hanging with. You chose not to hang around God's people and hang around and, 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 and be in the word of God and worship God and gather with his people and, and not forsake the, you forsake the fellowship. You want to go do your things with your buddies and everyone else and your other worldly people. And now you're in a situation where you're about to lose your life or lose your family or your children and all your job and all these things. And now you want to come back? Why don't you, why don't you all these people that you're hanging around that you think are so important, why don't, why don't you help them help you? Because they were the problem. They're the ones that took me down, the, gave me the drugs, gave me the alcohol, gave me the fornication opportunities. Worldly, lost everything, gambling. These people I were around, that's where I got it all, and that's why I'm losing everything. But thank God, our God is a God of mercy and grace, is he not? As a child of God, all you, you need to cry out and truly repent. He knows the difference if you're really repenting or you're just sorry you got caught. Sorry you're losing everything. You want everything back and restored. See, God saw something lacking in Israel's repentance right here. One may cry out to the Lord, but yet really just wish things were different and not find themselves back to like a dog to his vomit. He didn't, they did, I, I thought I would never go back there and do that again. Crying out to the Lord with a voice is not necessarily the same as crying out to him with a repentant heart. Cry of true change of God. God, I want to change. God wanted from Israel the same thing he wants from us. 
A heart that will put its hand to the plow and not look back. Luke 9.62 He wants us to come to the place where we know that there is nothing worth following except our God Almighty. Because Jesus is the answer. And the only answer. And so that's why God said to him, I know what your heart is saying. I know what your words are saying, what's coming out of your mouth. But that is not right. God, see, was harsh with Israel because he had to be harsh with them. Because if they did not be, bring this harshness and just accept it automatically, there was not going to be this genuine sickness of their sin. They're not really going to see sin as sin, sinning against God. So many people have these other words. I, you know, I just kind of messed up. What do you mean you just kind of messed up? You, you sinned against God? That's not just messing up. You didn't just spill your milk. And you're upset because now someone's mad because you spilt your milk and you made a messy. You literally sinned against God. You have to call it the way it is. Oh, no, I have a disease. No, no, it's called sin. Someone else did it. It's from my past, and it's just it kind of, no, no, call it as it is. It's sin. But look, people treat me. Call it as it is until you accept that it is sin, and you must repent and change and desire to change and let God do the changing. You're going to be just like the Israelites going back sevenfold to the apostasy and find yourself right back into bondage. That's what God is saying to these people. No, no, no. It's, you know, it looks like God is literally being serious here. I mean, this is the first time it's recorded that he refused to save them. <laughs> that must have been a shocking moment. It's like a son who's on drugs coming back to mommy and daddy and say, can you give me more money? No. What? Mom, you're not going to rescue me, mom? Are you sure, mom? Dad, don't, don't listen to dad. But mom, you know you're going to take care of me. I'm your son. No, son, I'm, I, I, I'm with your dad. I'm not giving you any more drug money. No, no, I won't do it this time. I really won't. No, no, that's what you said the last six times. No, no. No more money. Not going to deliver you. Not going to rescue you. No, no. You've got to come to the end of yourself. I mean, he's he's reminding them how repeatedly they they he had to deliver them over and over again, and he brought other judges to, to help them bring them out and to back into the you know out of that bondage, and he's done it now here. Now he's got two more. Good, you had blessings going on for forty five years, and everything's you know why why did he say no? And this is what most people don't understand. He said no because he loves them. He said no to his people because he loves them. This apparent rejection. This apparent indifference. I don't hear your pleas. You can plea all you want, cry all you want. I, I I don't hear this. No. He's testing to see how really sincere they are in their brokenness and their repentance. He's testing them. 
See, sometimes God will allow the natural consequences of our sin to come crashing upon us and almost like flood us. And we're like paddling us just trying to get air. The form of this concentration of sin is so concentrated, it's just, it makes you sick to your stomach. It's so concentrated. Because it reminds, as he says to them, which you have chosen. You have freely chosen these gods. You've freely chosen to walk away from me, forsake me, and start walking with these other gods and doing these things of this world. You wanted the culture. You wanted the world. You wanted all the half offer to you. You wanted that more than me and all the goodness and all the security and all the, the, the prosperity, everything I have promised you. You haven't been forced to worship these gods. They didn't oppress you and tyrants didn't make you. You chose to do those things. Then what happens? Not only do we see the love of God bring people to the test of really do you want me or do you not want me? Do you really want to follow me? Pick up your cross and follow me daily. Do you really want to do that? Ah, look what our God, our God is such a God of love, and, but we also see a God of mercy. Look at verses 15 and 16. And the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. Meaning God's soul, has, it's, it's like his nature is about mercy. No longer could he not, not show the mercy now because he's, they've come to the finally. Why did they change? They put away the foreign gods. They cut off everything that was, that was ungodly. And they started serving the Lord. Those are two key indicators of someone really changing. They stopped doing the ungodly things and they started to do God things. And it's not about just showing up. It is. That's a part of it. Showing up regardless of how you feel. But you, you want to serve God. You realize you want to turn around and do what God wants you to do. Whatever that is. But Israel came to a place of total surrender to God. And it came to a point where it just naturally says, do to me whatever seems best to me. The change of heart. That means that the season of affliction eventually did affect Israel in a good way, even though from an outward, like, oh, how could God do this? Well, they did it. How can you send anyone to, how can God send someone to hell? He didn't. They chose. They chose. And so finally they come back and choose. No, God, I want to serve you now. I need you. I want nothing else to do with these foreign gods. No more living in the 
world culture and everything else. And what happened? They put away those foreign gods and among them they served God. It's this final rediscovery, right? Finally, that discovery. The worst of serving God is better than the best of serving idols. The hardest part of serving God is still the best compared to serving idols. But God looked upon them, this disobedient Israel nation of his, and he showed compassion, he showed mercy, not hatred, but compassion and mercy, and it was difficult, the scripture says, he could no longer, God could no longer allow Israel to stay in their misery, though it was best for them at that season of life. See, it's like perfect loving parents. God hated to see Israel suffer, even when it was good for them. He, know, he longed to rescue them, but would not do it until it was good for them. And as parents, there's so many times you want to do good things for your kids. You want to do things good for the family. But you can't do it because they're in such rebellion. Such rebellion. But you long to want to do good things to them. You long to give them things. You long to take care. Like a mother with a drug addict son. Son, inside you know she's crying and grieving to want to help the son. But she knows she can't. She needs to let the son be in his misery to come to his senses, Lord willing. The third thing, kind of lesson here from the fact that a nation is decaying, not only were they not grateful, no, longer, no, 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 no doubt that they were no longer submissive to the Lord or wanting to follow the Lord, but we see here in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 10, their, their lack of, of leadership. Where's the leadership? What happened to the leadership? Who was overseeing the people here? And the people of Ammon gathered together and encamped in Gilead, and the children of Israel assembled together and encamped in Mizpah. And the, and the people of the leaders of Gilead said to one another, Who is the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So there they are, their enemies gathered Ammon, the people of Ammon are gathered, the Israel's gathering here, and the Israel people are looking at each other going, who's going to lead us? Who's going to deliver us? They're threatening us, they're coming against us, what are we going to do here? How are we going to go against them and defend them, defend ourselves against them? They had no leader. We see in the scripture when God in with his people. There's a pattern that God does when it comes to his people. Old Testament, New Testament. And today. 
God always has a pattern that you can see when he does wants to do great work among his people. He's always going to raise up a man to lead. He could do the work all by himself. God doesn't need anybody. He could send his angels to do the work for him. He could use a leaderless mob or a committee to do what he wants to do. Yet God's normal means of operation, how he operates, is to raise up a man, a godly man, to lead. And it's through that man to do a great work that people will follow and to learn to lead. And God uses leaders for his people. And that's true today. And when the Spirit is at work among believers, he will equip, he will call servants to accomplish his will and bless his people and raise them up into leadership. We see that in Acts 13, verses 1 through 4. And when God's people are submitted to him and serve him, he sends them gifted servants to instruct and lead them. But, this is a bad but, when the people's appetites turn to the world and turn to fleshly ways, God judges those people by depriving them of good, godly leaders. And that's how nations go down. When a nation desires the things of the flesh and ungodliness, he will give a nation absolutely deprived, terrible leaders, and it brings down a nation. Chapter 11, we see now God raising that leader up that they were asking about. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of the harlot. That's the best you've got out there? Are you kidding me here? And Gilead begot Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove out Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in your father's house, for you are the sons of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob. And worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. So we are now introduced to the third deliverer. The third judge, Jephthah. But look what happened. The people were looking for the person. God brought them that person. The man God chose to lead Israel to victory, what kind of man was he? We see that now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor. This man was brave and notable man in Israel and had a clouded pedigree, a clouded back, how, where he came from and where he was raised. His mother was a harlot. Who was the father? Gilead. In the areas, we, well, that you have to kind of sort that out. We're in the Gilead area. The, he's a Gileadite, but he was also, his dad was Gilead. 
Gilead had a, a wife, bore sons, but he also slept with a harlot and had a son, um, Jetha, from that, har that, har that uh, harlot. He started off as an unwanted brother that we see in these first three verses. His brothers, his, uh, his half-brother said, oh, we don't want you anymore. We, you can't have anything of our inheritance from our father. You're out of here. That's how he started his life, rejected from the family. So he takes off to Tob, and when he's down there, he's homeless. He probably has nothing in his, to his name, no money and stuff. So he starts hanging around with these other, what the scripture refers to as worthless men. These are men probably just like him. Cast out, outcasts. No money, no jobs, no, no nothing. And they band together, and they go out, and they start raiding to make money and, 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 and survive and live. And remember, Gilead was part of Israel, but they laid on the east side of the Jordan River, if you remember. They were in part of the territory of Reuben and Gad and half of the tribe of Manasseh. So they were on the other side. Remember, on the east side, where that, that was God's perfect plan. Just a permissive plan. Permissive of God to allow them to be there. But that wasn't his perfect plan. But this here, he's rejected by his family because of the illegitimate ancestry. And Jephthah grew up in this area in what would be modern-day Syria. And this little, did they realize, did his brothers and the family realize that the boy that they rejected would then soon be the future judge of Israel? Amazing. <laughs> Imagine that little conversation around the dinner table. What do you think the judge is going to do to us? We, kept, we, we kicked him out. Now he's, he's overseeing the nation of Israel. You imagine the conversations. But even though he was rejected by the family, God did not reject him. God blessed and used Jephthah for his God's people, and God made his choice of such a one here to be a deliverer of his people. He even registered him. Highly pointed out in the scriptures, where do you see this famous name, this person raised up above all? Hebrews 11, a man of faith. The hall of faith. He is in that list. Now, he wasn't a, like a, a leader of the band of criminals. It was, he was a band of people who were desperately surviving in poverty and, and uh, without work. That's where I see that it is. Because we will see that God's going to use him, not because he's raising, raising up a leader who's a head of criminals, killing and murdering. No, no. He was raising him up because it was a natural. He, God had called him to be a leader and people were banning to him to be able for them to survive. And so it came to pass after time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. And so it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah from the land of Tob. Then they said to Jephthah, come and be our commander that we may fight against the people of Ammon. What? The people who are casting you out are now coming to ask you to be now the leader over them? To go and lead them in, and go to this war with the Ammonites? Yes. Be our commander. 
So Jephthah said, what? Get out of here. You're, you're crazy. I'm not going to do that. No, look at what happens. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? What? Not just the brothers, but the brothers had to make sure the spiritual leaders of that town in Gilead, the elders, had to be the one to expel them out. Now they're coming humbly to him and say, we know based on our knowledge, you are the man to lead us. How did they know that? God. But he called them out on it. Aren't you the one who said you hated me? And kicked me out of the house and told me to get out of here? And now you're going to... I want to make sure you're clear, right? I want to make sure you... I'm hearing you right. Why have you come to me now? When you are in distress? Oh, so you have... You're at your your wit's end. Now you're going to humble yourself and come to me and ask. And the elders of the Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned again to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. (laughs) Oh, look at this. This is amazing. Remember, the nation of Ammon, the Ammonites, lived in the southern part of Israel. And they were a semi-nomadic group of people who descended from Abraham's nephew, Lot, if you remember. And this, that, that, that descendants of Lot are coming against God's people now. And now they're turning the Gileads, leaders of Gileads are now desperate. They're coming and calling on to someone who they know that can lead because God's putting on their heart to go reach out to Jephthah because that's who God has raised up for a time like this. And they were willing to give him the authority, the head of over Gilead. How did Jephthah respond? So Jephthah says here in verse 9 to the elders of Gilead, if you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? I'm just making sure I'm understanding this, Claire. You're not playing two games here. You're not just getting me to go to war and then give me a false promise here. I'm making sure I'm clear. I'm going to be ahead of you all. I'm going to be your leader. If I go get there and God delivers the people into my hand. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and commander over them. And Jephthah spoke with all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. He was only willing. Jephthah was only willing to be in charge and be able to 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 take this leadership role. In this crisis, going to war, if he remained a leader after the war, he didn't want to be rejected again by these people as a worthless man and cast him out into the gutter again. Remember, where do you get the word misbah? Do you remember in the scripture where we see that again? That was significant. We saw in Genesis chapter 31, verses 43 through 50, and that's when this is the famous agreement between Laban and Jacob took place right here in this town, 
Assyria. Now, in verse 12 and 13, we see now Jephthah has the ability to negotiate. He was trying to find a negotiation before having to go into war. Look what, how he, he tries it four times. He tries it a few times to negotiate with the, the Ammonites. Look at what happened, the king of Ammonites. He says, now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon, saying, what do you have against me that you have come to fight against me in my land? Now it's his land. He was cast down, now it's his land. He's ahead. He's taking responsibility. And the king of the people of Ammon answered the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt from the Arnon as far as Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore those lands peaceably. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like a current day, you know, Israel kind of conflict? That's our land. No, no, that's our land. What do you, well, it's no different here. But here, look what's interesting is Jephthah asked a simple question. Why are you coming against us? Why is this our land? We've been in this land for quite some time. Perhaps, why, what's the dispute? Maybe we can negotiate in diplomacy and let's find a common ground here because we've been dwelling together for a long time in this land. Why is it that you want warfare now? And the king of Ammon gave us a very simple reply because you're in our land. This is our land. You took it from us and we want it back. Well, how did Jephthah... Jephthah Jephthah respond to the king? Look at this, verses 14 through 28. So Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon. Here's the second time. And said to him, thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the people of Ammon. For when Israel came up from Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, please let me pass through your land. We're not going to mess with you. We're not going to take your stuff. We're just going to stay really close on a very tight road. We're going to go pass through. We're giving you a heads up. Don't mess with us. We don't mess with you. We're just going to walk through. Now keep in mind, Edom, the Edomites, they're part of Israel. They were now, they're, they're now enemies of Israel, remember. What did, what did the king of Edom say right there? But the king of Edom would not heed, would not agree. No, you can't pass through our land. And in like manner, they sent to the king of Moab. Now here's another. Second time. Well, we'll go this way and, 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 and the Moabs or the king of Moab. Can we pass through? No, the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained in Kadesh, and they went along through the wilderness and bypassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab, came to the east side of the land of Moab, and encamped on the other side of Arnon. But they did not enter the border of Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. Then Israel sent messengers to Shion, the king of the Amorites, king of the Heshbon, and Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land into our place. But Shion did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Shion gathered all of his people together and encamped in Ahaz and fought against Israel. And the Lord of God of Israel delivered Shion and all his people into the hand of Israel and they defeated them. They ended up going to war with them to make sure they get through. Thus Israel gained possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. You made us go to war. 
because we went to war and we won, we now get all the spoils, including the land. It's ours now. You fought us. We won. It's ours now. They took possession of all the terry of the Amorites from Arnon to the uh, Habakkuk and from the wilderness to Jordan. And now the Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. Should you then possess it? Okay, wait a minute. Why should you now possess it if we want it and it's our land now and it's God's gave it to us? Will you not possess whatever Kamosh your God gives you to possess? Whatever your God has provided to you and allowed you to win and get, don't you possess that? Just like my God gave us this land, we'll possess it, it's ours. So whatever the Lord your God takes possession of before us, we will possess. And now... Are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? While Israel dwelt in Hishbon and in his villages, in Aror and his, in his villages, and in all the cities along the banks of, of, of the Arnon, for 300 years it's been like this. What are you talking about this now? 300 years. Why did you not recover them within that, that time? Why are you trying to take over the land now? Therefore, I have not sinned against you. I've done nothing wrong. We have done nothing wrong. You have, this is unprovoked. You shouldn't be, be, be doing this. But you wronged me by fighting against me. May the Lord, the judge, Render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. However, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words which Jephthah sent him. I've been trying to negotiate with you. I'm trying to find diplomacy. I know there's a conflict. I don't know why you're doing this now. After 300 years, this has been settled. This is our land. God gave it. It's God's land. He gave it to God's people. It's it. Why is that still happening today in, the, in Israel? Because the enemy is the enemy. <laughs> the enemy wants to destroy God's people. He doesn't want, the enemy doesn't want God's people to have anything. You're going to get conflict from the enemy. They probably don't even know why. They just want what they want. They're the enemy. They're in darkness. He tried to negotiate. He said, okay, the Lord is going to be the judge. He's going to render this out. We're going to go to war. You're picking a fight. We're going to go to war, and God is going to make the judgment, and whoever wins gets to keep the land. 300 years. It's the same total of the judges and the periods of oppression that was given up to this point. It was that same amount of years of oppression and all kinds of things. During this, it's actually 319 years. So it's almost to the time frame. Of all the judges and oppressions and things they're going through, now they're faced a final, this final battle. And what Jeth, Jephthah, Jephthah says in negotiation brings out something very interesting to me. You try to work with someone who's at picking a fight, trying to trying to come in against you, and just there's just there's hatred, there's there's something not right. And you're trying to figure out, and you're trying to figure, okay, this is the issue? Is this the issue? You know what? No, you just, want, you just want to pick a fight. You just want to come against me. What Jephthah is showing through true wisdom of God, by not 
by trying not to go right to war, right to fight, or right to react, he is bringing out that this is a spiritual battle. What they were dealing with was a spiritual battle. And that's why we're always reminded we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities and darkness of this world. So when you get there and you get butting heads and something's going on, you just know it's spiritual warfare. There's no reason to rhyme and reason. You're like, okay, why is this happening? Why didn't you say something 300 years ago? Why are you doing it now? Because the enemy is the enemy. Divide and conquer, divide and conquer, destroy, destroy, whatever he can and anything. So he says to them, at Kermash, your God, don't you accept and traditionally accept whatever your God gives you? You worship that God and whatever you gather, you, you praise him for that. And, you, and, and now my God's given me this land and now you're coming against me? And even all the reason he's trying to give them, it was of no effect. When it's a spiritual warfare, even reasoning does not settle the problem. So what happens? Verse 29. Jephthah gathers his troops, like our good leader should, advances courageously, as we will see, and go against Haman. But he gets a little out of touch here. Look, you know what happens. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. The Spirit of God was with them. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed through Mizpah to Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he advanced toward the people of Ammon. Courage. God given him the courage. Be strong and a good courage. This is going to, we're going to overcome the fears. We're going to overcome the anxieties. We need to fill our lives you know, we're going to, God is with us. We're going to move forward and do what God's called us to do. And just like our lives, we can get over this torment that people are coming against us and all kinds of fear and anxiety if we would just fill our lives with Jesus and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Then the Holy Spirit came upon them to do an act of work to accomplish God's work. Then the Holy Spirit removed. But for us, as a child of God, the Holy Spirit comes in and seals us for eternity. He also empowers us for times and things to do things for God. But the Holy Spirit doesn't leave us. It dwells within us. And here they are now the Spirit of God's on there. The filling of the Spirit makes us advance. That's how they moved forward. They moved forward in the sense of spiritual progress. They moved, they moved forward to conquer the enemies in front of them. And so too with us. We are also, the Spirit makes us advance in our life. We are going to have this sense of spiritual progress and maturity when we go forward in the sense of confronting the enemies of God, the things, the giants in our lives, and the things we know that God is with us and will empower us to overcome those things that we're dealing with. So that you can mature, that you can progress in you and continue to do hard things for God as God's called us to do. And go against the enemies that are in front of us. Then we see another major point. We see here's a victory that Jephthah has. He's a leader. He's a tremendous mountaintop experience, let's call it. After a war, they won. Incredible victory, celebration. You know how that feeling is if you've ever gone to war and have celebration, coming back and you made it through the war. 
through the fight, whatever it may be. Be very careful. <laughs> it's our warning to us, and then only someone should have warned him. Look what happened to Jephthah. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. He was so excited, he was just talking to the Lord. If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then I will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the, from the people of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So not only do we have some sense of challenges when we have a mountaintop experience and we're coming off the mountain, watch out, the enemy's ready there. But watch out before you have, a, when you have the enemy in front of you, it's amazing how we will make vows. God, you know, if you would just give my family back to me and just, I don't want to lose my family, I make a vow. And you make all kinds of vows. I will never do that again. I will never be, go here. I will not. You make all kinds of vows because you're negotiating, almost like manipulating God to get, his, to get your way. We have to be very careful in the scriptures as we study the scriptures in the Old Testament, especially Leviticus 18.21 and Deuteronomy 12.31. It it's, it's talks about these things that he's about to make a vow. He should have really thought things through before he made statements to God. Because he knew the word. He knew God's word. But because of out of his desperation or attempts to manipulate God or somehow to get confirmation how committed he was, he made a foolish vow. I will, whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me and return and coming back from peace and winning from this war shall surely be the Lord's and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. See, it's far more important to be on God's side, just to simple obedience and be on his side and do what the word is said, than try to persuade him and try to manipulate him to get him on your side. Even a spirit-filled man can do foolish things. The Holy Spirit does not overwhelm and control us. He guides us. We still have free will to live our lives for God or not. And you can do it his way or you don't. And even though the Holy Spirit's right there, he's probably prompting you and, and, and waking ways out and doing all kinds of things. He doesn't control you and overwhelm you as much as sometimes we wish he, he did. But that guidance can res be resisted and can be ignored in our lives if we're not careful. We can grieve the Spirit of God. But remember, God is so willing and ready and gladly and freely out of his own heart of love and passion and mercy and grace wants to deliver you. He wants to help you and I. If we're willing to do it his way. I don't think Jephthah had any idea in his mind that if a human being walked out of his house he was willing to sacrifice that human being some people will say that i don't see that in the scripture why because he knew the word he knew leviticus 18 21 he knew deuteronomy 31 mosaic law you could not do human sacrificing 
It was forbidden. So I don't see how in anywhere near this. I really think he saw an, a cow coming out of his house or a, a, a sheep or something that he was going to do that. But he knew that it was going to be concentrated to give into God for his purpose. And when you go back, and I've studied a lot of these Hebrew scholars and a lot of these looking it up because I needed to be settled in this years ago when I came across this passage. And I think the best translation I had notes in is I will concentrate it to the Lord or I will offer it for a burnt offering. If it be a thing fit for burnt offering, I will do a burnt offering because I will do that. I'll put the cow on the Barbie and it'll be done. There'll be a sacrifice to you. The goat, the sheep, uh, it's going to go on the altar. But if it's something you don't do a burnt offering, in this case we will see. I will dedicate that person to you for your purpose and for your service. What happens? So Jetha advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. And he defeated them from Eror as far as Minith, 20 cities, and to Ebel Kurman with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. So he won. He was spirit was on him. Spirit was on the people. Leadership filled, filled judge. God raised him up a deliverer, a spirit filled judge and moved forward and won to settle for once and for all. This is God's land. What happens when Jephthah came to his house in Mizpah, at Mitzpah? There was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing. She was worshiping. And she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither a son nor daughter. You know that daughter was close to him. And it came to pass when he saw her that his, he tore traditionally tore his clothes in grief because he already knew what the vow he made. And said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. I'm really, what? I came out to celebrate. I'm, I'm worshiping. I'm, I'm excited. What do you mean I brought you very low? What do you mean I brought you to despair like you want to die? That's what it's saying in the language. You want to die over me? Why would you want to die because of that? Dad, daddy, it's just you and me. I'm your only child. What do you mean you want to die? You are among those who trouble me. For I have given my word to the Lord and I cannot go back on it. That brings challenges for many people when you read that. Jephthah made his foolish vow sincerely and fully, completely in his heart intended to keep it. But yet he had not seriously really considered and, and thinking through all the consequences of that vow. And so he was grieved with when his daughter was first to meet him out of his house. Jephthah's oath was very foolish. He should never have kept it. He had no right to punish or afflict his daughter in any way because of his vow he made to God. 
It was one thing if he thought it was going to be a cow or a sheep. But it was his, it was his daughter, his only daughter. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 and 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, 4, 6 speaks of the danger of making foolish vows. It's better not to make a vow at all than to make a foolish vow. Doesn't mean vows are bad. Don't go there. They can be good. But we must take them seriously. Don't make them just some broad sweep conversation. But he was so committed to not going back on God's word, he had to follow through with it. So what happened? Let's finish with verses 36 through 40. So she, the daughter, said to him, My father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. Then she said to her father, Let this thing be done to him for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. So he said, go, and he sent her away for two months. And she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And it was so at the end of two months that she returned to her father, and he cried out his vow with her, carried out, sorry, and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed, she knew no man, so she was still a virgin. And it came a custom in Israel that the, that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. So some think that Jephthah did really offer his daughter to as a burnt offering. I don't see that. If he did, this was clearly an example of misguided zeal for God. That is not what God's anticipation or expectation at all. Nowhere in the scripture. Matter of fact, he's against human sacrifice. Instead, Jephthah now has to take his daughter, and she has to stay a virgin. She, and it was a dishonor in many respects in that culture not to be married, to have children. She, she, they all anticipated to be married. They all wanted to have children. They wanted to, have, to bring the lineage of the, of the family. And he had no son. He had no daughters. And he had to now, he had to dedicate her to the service of God. And she needed to stay virgin and be completely dedicated at the temple or the tabernacle. We're set apart to, to God and a vow and, and, and to, to sacrifice and be given to the work of the monetary value of working at the tabernacle. Where do we see that played out? They're called the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. You will see that reference of these women who are set apart for the tabernacle service in Exodus 38.8 and 1 Samuel 2.22. And his daughter and his friends, they were able to go out and just enjoy life and just be kids and be young and just go out. Yes, there were, she was grieving and, and because she's, now she can't get married, she can't have children, she can't be with them anymore because she's now completely the rest of her life dedicated. Most people believe that the women assembled at the door of the tabernacle were all older women. 
more likely widows, and they are now dedicated there, and now she's a young girl, and she never had the fill of life of being married and have kids. She had to start at a very young and stay in that position and serve God that way. And I believe that's the best explanation here because Jephthah was the on the list as a hero of faith in Hebrews 11.32. And it's very difficult, I hard to think of him as doing something so contrary to God's ways and offering his daughter as human sacrifice. I just don't see it. Jephthah was one of the judges God raised up to be one of the deliverers and on the hall of faith, a godly man. Father, we thank you for your word this evening, Lord. We thank you for understanding of being used by you in a leadership role, but also bringing, helping to bring victory over our enemies, to also be very wise about making vows to you, Lord, but be lined with the word of God and to just be simply obedience. More than sacrifice, but obedience, just living our lives just so freely and lovingly and just for you, completely surrendered to you. May we choose wisely every day, Lord, just to serve you with such just joy and just such such empowering of your spirit in our lives. Even when the enemies may come against us and the flesh may raise up and idols and little gods are everywhere in the culture and everything, may we just be so in walking in the spirit and truth that we would not entertain. We're among it, but we're not part of it. It's not our home. They're not our gods. You are God. There's only one and true God. May we worship you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful night. We'll see you soon.